when one part of my body cooperates and another doesn't. So my knees are much better, thank you very much. And now my head is the one that's is the part of my body that's not cooperating. It's, it's good to be back, even, even trying to ease in by limiting hours. Um, and thank you so much for all the cards and good wishes and all of the expressions of concern that Janet received as well. And uh, for apple jelly and apple pie too. So good things coming um, to me uh, as expressions of, uh, of goodwill. I speak to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So Jesus tells a story about a very wealthy man and a very poor man. And the people around Jesus hear a fairy tale about a man who dresses in purple and fine linen and feasts sumptuously every day. They've never met anyone that rich they laugh at the image of a little guy in big clothes stuffing his face with food. And maybe some of them catch the details. Purple. Purple cloth. The most expensive of all. The Romans love it. And fine linen. Fine linen is reserved for the high priest's underwear. People around Jesus are wearing clothes made of flax, but they're pretty coarse and drab and, well, flaxy. The Romans eat well, too, every day. So do the high priest and his crew, because the best livestock goes to the temple. What do you think happened to those animals after they were offered in worship? And people around Jesus also have to imagine a poor man named Lazarus who's covered with sores, who longs to satisfy his hunger with what falls from the rich man's table to the floor, and dogs come and lick his sores. So Lazarus' situation is the worst any of them can imagine. But some of them would notice, maybe after hearing Jesus tell many stories, they'd notice this man has a name. He's the only character in any of Jesus' many dramas who gets a name. And this man's name is Lazarus, which is a Greekified version of the Hebrew name Eleazar, which means God has helped. Well, it doesn't seem God has helped this Lazarus, does it? But wait for it. The rich man feasts. He gorges himself every day because he can, because he doesn't care, and he doesn't believe he owes anybody anything, not even Lazarus. And he knows. He knows who Lazarus is and where Lazarus is. And Lazarus knows who lives in that house and how he behaves, and no doubt Lazarus can imagine how much falls to the floor or gets thrown to the floor. And if he could just get a few bites that would satisfy, satisfy his hunger. Now the rest of the story isn't about any literal heaven or hell or who goes where and, and why. So the people are asked to imagine that Lazarus gets Father Abraham's help 
And the rich man goes in another direction to Hades, Gehenna, the smoldering garbage dump outside Jerusalem. But somehow, the rich man can see Lazarus, and Abraham can see the rich man. And the rich man still wants Lazarus to wait on him. Just a drop of water that Lazarus can carry across the divide on the tip of his finger. Now move forward with me a few decades from the people who followed Jesus around and listened to his stories to the first generation of church members, people like us. There's a leader who dares to write in Paul's name and calls up the memory of Timothy, Paul's famous protege, to catch his readers' imaginations. And a lot of writers did just that in the second century. They claimed the authority of someone else to give power to their words. And so, to this young congregation, the writer says, well, this young congregation is like Timothy. Timothy was called to learn, to carry on the apostles' tradition, to serve the people, to pay attention to what the women in his life had to say. That's a nice frame for what the author wants to say to his congregation. And in chapter 6, he writes about wealth, the desire to be rich, the love of money. Money. Sounding like uh, one of the dragons, aren't it? Money, where's the money? Well, money for the first generation of church members is beginning to become a problem. People who first followed Jesus had, well, they, they never handled cash. They, they lived, they had a subsistence living. But by the time the church moves out into the Gentile world, and it grows and grows, and it's attracting people of all kinds and classes, that includes people who have money, and the ability to go on making money, and to accrue interest on loans and investments. And so, how do they deal with this? This is a new phenomenon for Christians. The church is no longer a collection of refugees and poor people, widows and orphans. It's become, by our standard, kind of the middle class. So how do the people handle their wealth? What do they have? The author's words are sharp. Those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Those may be the only words anyone remembers from 1 Timothy, and they're always misquoted, aren't they? The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Or remember the story Jesus told. The love of luxury, the love of surfeit, the love of consumption. The voice in 1 Timothy calls those who want to realize real profit in life to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. And the voice calls those who in this present age are rich not to be haughty, 
or set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So the wealthy are called to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share. But is there any benefit? Is there any benefit of this Godward direction in life? Well, how about the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life that really is life, the life that is really life? Turning away from the gospel of this world what Greta Thunberg so aptly called fairy tales of eternal economic growth, turning away from the voice that says, if some is good, more is better, and acquiring, building, and consuming the most is best. Growth is the only evidence of life is part of that creed. Well, of course, we want our savings to grow, don't we? If we have mutual funds, stock portfolios, pension funds, RSPs, RIFs, TFSAs, all going well, they will keep on growing. We, like so many churches, depend on our investments growing. We need the income to support our mission and ministry. And so do the 1%, by the way. The 1% count on their wealth continuing to grow. Some are questioning that, though. Bill Gates and Warren Buffett have said, enough now. Enough for now, because their wealth continues to grow. But you want to know how rich Warren Buffett is, he hired Bill and Melinda Gates to give his money away for him. And that's wonderful. They're doing amazing things. And we know in Toronto, the Guerin family endowed the Old East General because they could, because they cared, and because they felt they owed a debt of gratitude. Now, none of us here today is as ignorant and self-indulgent as the, the rich man in Jesus' story. I hope not, anyway. None of us is a one percenter. I don't think so. I don't think any of us here is a one percenter, are we? Any of us? And no matter what we may think of ourselves, none of us is as poor as the people of the land who follow Jesus and listen to his stories. We are more like the people in First Timothy's church, called rich in their time by our standards, somewhere in the middle in our measurements of wealth. But are you and I contented with our lives? I'm not doing that. Are you and I contented with our lives? Now, I don't mean complacent. I don't mean smug. I don't mean glumly resigned to a status quo that we may actually be able to change for the better. No, contented. And I know we have so many reasons for discontent in the world today. The climate crisis, the erosion of trust in anyone who governs or wants to. We question truth 
and the priorities even of our most trusted media. Some of us are globe readers and some of us are star readers. And I heard from someone this morning who because of something that was in the globe this weekend that they didn't like that they're thinking of canceling their subscription. They don't know who to trust. And we know that there is such a need for justice in this world. The justice that truly makes for peace. I guess I am doing that. So we know there are reasons for discontent. We know there are reasons for holy anger. We know there are things that we have to try to change in this world. But the only way we can find the strength we need, the courage, and the vision we need to change those things that trouble us and frighten us in this world is if we can say with the writer of the old gospel hymn, it is well, it is well with my soul. Contentment. The writer of 1 Timothy says, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. Courage, vision, hope, we need them all. But we can't take hold of them until our souls are settled. So how can we help that happen? Seeking and finding contentment is a spiritual practice. It's soul work. And a first step toward contentment is to remember the grace of God, the givenness of life. We're not our own creators. Life is a given. This world is a given. When we talk about those moments when we feel that we are having a spiritual experience or we are closer to God or we are at peace, how many of us describe times when we're standing out in a place where the sky is not polluted by city lights and we see the stars. In fact, we can even hear the stars singing to us. We know that we are close to God. How many of us talk about being by a great body of water or on a boat in, in, in a body of water and we can't see the shore, but we know the truth of that phrase and underneath are the everlasting arms and we know God is close. We didn't create any of that. We can change it. We can even wreck it and destroy it, but we didn't make it. Remembering the grace of God and the givenness of life. You and I were born into this world against all odds, and we were given freedom. But as Jesus said, we can't add one second to our span of life or one millimeter to our height by worrying by thinking we can take control of them. We brought nothing into this world, First Timothy says, and we can take nothing out of it. And that's the second step toward contentment, to recognize that nothing we create, gather, store up, achieve, nothing that we are tempted to believe makes for the life that really is life will last forever. The good and the bad, the blessings and the curses that come to us in this life will all die. Nothing is eternal except the life that God gives us. And the, the third step 
And this one also leads to a spiritual practice, compassion. Compassion and confidence when we discover we have something to share, something to give that will make a difference in someone else's life and in the life of the world. And we may think that all we have to offer are crumbs, leftovers, fragments of love, the, the copper pennies that we still have in a mason jar somewhere in our homes. Compassion flows from a contented spirit. And we discover and recover that we can do good and be rich in good works, generous and ready to share. All of us can. And don't we all want to take hold of and live life that is really life? And the loudest voices in our world today offer us so many ways to life that is really life, that is no better life at all. They assure us that some is good and more is better and amassing and building and consuming the most we can is best. That's the way to take hold of the life that is really life, those loudest voices say. And today we hear a quiet but insistent voice saying, there is great gain in godliness with contentment, a life lived Godward combined with contentment. So do good and be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share and then reach out and take the life that really is life. And that life is still on offer and it's not beyond our reach. Glory to God. Amen.